And hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking to the multi-instrumentalist and composer Rick Walker. Now, Rick is not a backward-looking kind of guy, but he's making an exception this week with a special concert highlighting some milestones from his long and varied musical career. That is going to take place at the Coomba Jazz Center in Santa Cruz, California, on Thursday, January 23rd, and we'll give out more details later. Rick Walker has been a force on the music scene in this part of California, meaning the Monterey Bay and San Francisco Bay areas, for uh, 30-some years as a performer, a teacher, a creator, a curator, and occasional impresario. He made his name first as a rock drummer, playing punk, new wave, and ska, And then he devoted himself to learning all sorts of other percussion traditions from around the world, including African, Afro-Latin, and Afro-Brazilian styles. He headlined his own bands, including Worlds Collide, and he played with a number of other musical notables such as Bob Brosman, Martin Simpson, and Babatundi Olatunji. And then in the 1990s, he plunged into electronica and looping technology. And uh, he has become a mainstay of the international looping movement, which might seem like a big departure from the so-called roots music that he'd been doing, but as you're going to hear today, it is all of a piece aesthetically. In recent years, Rick has continued to broaden his musical palette, learning new instruments, taking up singing, expanding into jazz, and occasionally going back to his roots as a rock drummer. This past week, Rick and I sat down to talk about some of the things he's done over the years, and though we couldn't possibly cover all of them in a single interview, we did our best to hit some of the high points. Rick, thank you for coming in. Thanks a lot for having me. Why a retrospective now? What uh, prompted this? Well, it's interesting. Um, I didn't come up with this idea. The Kumbwa actually approached me. I guess for some reason they thought it was a timely thing. Um, I did just turn 60, uh, and I've been playing music since I was five years old when I first started taking piano lessons. So I've been playing for 55 years. So um, I'm certainly not at the end of my life. I've got an awful lot left to do, but but I'm I'm well into it. So I guess that's the I guess that's the logic. Time to take stock and just look at all you've accomplished over the decades? Well, it's funny because I don't think like that. I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I actually don't look back yeah. very much in my life. I, I'm always sort of looking forward. And um, it's been a trip, actually, to plan this show because I have had to go back. I mean, even, even um, assembling some tracks to, to play for today, I had to go back and listen to things. And, and, and I hadn't. I hadn't really done it. So it was kind of kind of cool. Even though you have kept a lot of your recordings from several decades back, you don't ever just say, gee, I want to go and re-listen to that? Uh, you know, I, I really don't. Uh, the only thing is that because of the whole advent of sampling, which I find really fascinating, the ethics of sampling and mm-hmm. using sampling as a new art form, I had this idea that I want to do a, a record called Plagiarism. And I want to go back and only sample what I've done. Oh, your own and stuff. And completely redo it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like as if I were not me, mm. you know, if I were Cut Chemist or mm-hmm. somebody like that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and do it. So so um, 
the only thing I've actually gone back to look at was the World's Clyde record, which is actually has a lot of fodder because there's a lot of really interesting timbres on that record. Um, so I actually have gone back and done it. And uh. um, uh, there's a... Um, there's a song called Silent Spring on that record, and I just slowed it down 30%, and it just sounds amazing. That's all I did was slow it down 30%. Now, you're not allowed to talk about recordings we can't play on this show. We don't have that one. We do have one recording from your band, uh, Worlds Collide, but we're going to bring that up in chronological order. We're going to start first, though, with something older. This is the oldest recording you could come up with for me. It's really not anywhere near your real beginnings as a musician, because you said those happened when you were five years old. Right. (laughs) Right. But the first recording you could come up with um, was uh, from the band Dow Chemical, mm-hmm. which was, I think you guys were New Wave, isn't that how you yeah. described yourself? Yeah. We, when we started out, and for maybe the first three to six months that we were together, we thought of ourselves as a punky ska band. And, and then that morphed into being more of a pop band and, and a, a New Wave band, very theatrical. And this was in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. by the way, Dow Chemical, not the famous chemical company, but Dow spelled T A O. Mm-hmm. Like the Dow De Ching. Like the Dao De Ching, uh, Taoism. Yeah, a nice new agey twist on the chemistry. <laughs> Let's listen to this piece. It's called It Ain't Always. That was from 1982, Rick? Uh, that's when the record came out, yeah. We joked because we said we were the last great band of the 70s because we were formed in October 79, but didn't really get going till the 80s. The band consisted of you on drums, mm-hmm. right? Your yeah. brother Bill on guitar. Uh, Bill actually joined later. It was Rob Bresney on vocals and Jim Rutledge on bass and not Michael on guitar. So we were a four-piece for about a year and a half. And then my brother and Janet Ring joined, Janet Ring on vocals. And uh, then, then then that was the lineup for a long time. And by the way, not Michael was a name. That mm-hmm. was one guy. Yeah, Michael Halmesser, <laughs> who's, who's a brilliant musician, if you ask me. Everything he's ever done in his life is just brilliant. Right? And, and Rob Bresney is known to a lot of people, um, if not for his music, for his uh, astrology column, long-running, nationally syndicated astrology column. Yeah. Yes. He's famous for that, and, and it's interesting. It, it dovetails into what his role was in, in the band because he was the front person for the band, but he always had this beautiful quality of mixing like a Southern Baptist preacher with a complete Dadaist. Most of his lyrics had tons of irony on them. He, he was always about trying to make people think, and um, 
I'm actually not very into astrology, to be honest. But Rob, it is he's a meta-astrologist. He's not a typical astrologer. He He's always playing with archetypes, and he's trying to get people to think all the time, including about their assumptions about astrology. So, uh, yeah, he's very successful syndicated uh, columnist. Mm. At that time, I think you were known to most people um, who knew your work as a drummer, as a percussionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You've obviously expanded way beyond that, and you said that you had started on piano. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I I took two years of piano lessons as a kid, then I took a year of cello, and then I took five years of clarinet. And when I was first chair in the little school orchestra, uh, I, I discovered rock and roll, and then that was it. And I, why drumming? Because it was the last thing my parents wanted me to do. <laughs> it was the meanest sexiest, <laughs> non-intellectual. I came from a, a family full of scientists and, and intellect, and you know they had me going to college and taking college prep classes all the time and everything like that. And at the time, I just wanted to kind of like escape that world. And, and rock and roll just was a Dionysian thing for an angry young 13-year-old kid. So for a long time, you studied percussion, all kinds of percussion. Mm-hmm. Um, we just heard you doing rock and roll percussion, but you went uh, much further into all kinds of traditions. Yeah, and the reason that happened was, uh, I, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but I went to Stevenson College when I was in college. That's at uh, UC Santa yeah, Cruz? Yeah, at UC Santa Cruz, and I went to a dance there because I wanted to meet girls. Literally, that's why I went. And there was this band from Africa called Hedjole Sounds playing. And my mouth hit the floor. I, I had never heard anything like it. They were playing all in 6-8. And I sat at the side of that stage and watched all of their sets the whole evening. And it just changed my whole life. I just went, I have to know about this. So I just started to try to find out anything I could know about it. And that led me ultimately to playing African dance classes with Marian Oliker out of which came the Laurel Street Drummers, and out of which kind of ultimately came the World Beat Movement. But that's another story. Well, the Laurel Street Drummers, this is a mm-hmm. group of guys, four guys, right? Mm-hmm. Four guys, you were one of them. Uh, Americans doing kind of African-derived percussion, whether right. it was Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Cuban or direct from Africa. You guys were you know, sort of combining bits of learning that you all had into a kind of synthesis. Yeah, and, and right? you know, the entire pop world it, it has been dominated by music from the African diaspora. So Afro-American music, rock and roll, blues, soul, swing, all these kinds of things. And the only difference was that we started then being really fascinated about, like, where th- those roots came from originally. And, and so rather than listening to R&B, which I had done all my life, uh, I, you know, we, we were trying to listen to West African and East African, South African, North African, et cetera. Uh, you know, Rick, uh, you guys actually recorded a little cassette tape, uh, the Laurel Street Drummers. And um, this actually be, will be the earliest recording we hear in this interview. It's from 1980. I'm looking at the, <laughs> yeah. the cassette. So I, I misspoke when I said earlier the Dow Chemical Cut was the oldest one. This one's even older. And this is you, uh, Jim Greiner, Arthur Hull, and Bob Bortnick. And uh, again, it was a kind of melange of, of various African-derived styles that you guys put together into a 
pretty powerful drum sound. It, it literally came from the dance classes that we were doing at the Laurel Community Center, which is now called the Loudoun uh-huh. Community Center. And these are African dance classes. Yeah, so we were we just drummed a lot together and had fun, and then we started to do concerts where just people would come dance freely right. rather than going to a dance class. And, and then uh, ultimately the rhythm section of Dow Chemical I put them together with the Laurel Street Drummers, and that's how Rhythmical was born. Uh, this is a, an offshoot band, Dow Rhythmical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear a little piece uh, from this cassette, this old cassette tape, uh, Laurel Street Drummers from 1980. That was uh, a little excerpt from an ancient cassette tape, 34 years old, called wow. The Laurel Street Drummers, uh, one of whom was uh, Rick Walker, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. Rick is a longtime musician, composer, and uh, many other things besides, as we're going to hear today. And he is um, reflecting on his long career in music in anticipation of a show that's coming up at Kuumba Jazz Center on Thursday, January uh, 23rd, this week at 7 p.m., in which uh, Rick is going to celebrate, quote-unquote, a lifetime in music. Uh, you can learn more about that uh, by emailing looppool at cruzio.com, or you can go to kumbojazz.org. Rick, were you guys in that, in that band just sort of making it up, or you know, was this authentic African rhythm? You know, uh, I played with a drum uh, a bass drum and a snare drum and a hi-hat. And Bob Bortnick, who was a guitar player, not a percussionist, played a Mexican conga with a hole in the middle, <laughs> right? And I taught him his first conga lesson out of stick control for the modern drummer. We did not know what we were doing, <laughs> but we played in 6-8 because I was copying. I just learned everything I could from Hegeli Sounds. Which and was then, a Ghanaian band, by the yes, way. Yes, yeah. yeah, who won the Ghanaian... Um, High Life Championships in the 60s, and then Hugh Masekela brought them here and unceremoniously dumped them, and that's why they ended up in this town, which was amazing. That's right. You know, I interviewed Hugh Masekela quite a while ago when he wrote his autobiography, and it mentions Hegele Sounds. Mm-hmm. It mentions him touring with them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when we first started, we were just, like, trying to play it, and we were, you know, uh, uh, we were newbies, and we were wannabes, and we didn't, you know didn't know what we were doing. And then after a period of time, a man named Michael Plusnick came in and started giving us traditional lessons. And he had really studied quite a bit. And after that, his teacher, Simbo, came in. So, you know, suddenly Arthur Hull shows up and he actually has three congas. Oh, my God, he's got congas. And then Jim Greiner had actually been to Africa and, and he and he came in and joined us. And, and then little by little, we actually started taking lessons. And then we started taking lots of lessons. And then I, I, I basically studied with every single person I could possibly study with. And parenthetically, Santa Cruz became known as a place to stop for Africans traveling through the West Coast because we were real friendly. We would go out and meet artists, put them up in our homes, feed them, uh, make sure they had lessons to teach to people. I mean, really, we were really trying to cultivate that image, and it really grew. Then a ton of people moved here. 
and all of a sudden Santa Cruz started bubbling up and this whole interest in world music. Yeah, and this was the sort of dawn of what people came to call world beat and Mm -hmm. all of that. uh, A term I abhor. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, me too, me too. (laughs) But uh, there was a big movement that started in the early 80s. And as you say, a lot of the... um, a lot of the African, and, and not just African, but a lot of world music folks from other countries, mm-hmm. and again, I don't even like to term world music, but a lot of people from around the world, stopped off here. Some stayed. One of them uh, was another person you played with, very, very famous, Baba Tundi Olatunji. He had come to the U.S. in the 1950s from Nigeria and made a big splash with his first album in 1959, Drums of Passion as part of, I think, what was a, a, then an earlier interest in world music that happened to coincide with the folk scene right. in the 1950s. He sold six million copies. Yeah, it was a, it was a huge album. Yeah, you could Columbia. find it on in many, many people's living rooms, mm-hmm. people of my parents' generation. Yeah. But Ola Twinji actually settled in this area near the end of his life, didn't he? Well, no, no, not exactly. He, uh-huh. he, uh, he was based out of New York, and then he had a sort of a second home at Esalen. He would go to Esalen ah, a lot. Esalen in uh, Big Sur. But yeah. because, because he had sort of a, Esalen was a cash cow gig for him. He it enabled him to come out here and stay for a while. And since he stayed for a while, then he put together a band. And then that my brother and I were part of that band, Arthur Hall and David Price and people like that. And um, he's incredibly important in my life because he's the first adult male who ever really sort of supported me and believed in my art. At that time in his life, my dad was not supportive of me at all, although later in his life he he turned around. Mm. And and I'd never had anyone who was an adult male approve of what I was doing. So I always felt a little bit, you know, illegitimate or not appreciated or whatever. And Baba was really loving with me. And um, I didn't even have a godfather. And so we did a ceremony. And so Baba is my godfather. And um, uh, I just really, I really loved him a lot. And uh, he ultimately, he fired me from his band. And he fired me from his band because he said, he always called me Captain. He said, Captain, he goes, you are an artist and you need to be an artist and you can't do that with me. And so, and I honestly believed he fired me because he wanted to push me into going ahead and, you know, being a band leader or being a, a writer or whatever. So, yeah, he's, he has a huge uh, place in my heart. You you did bring in a recording uh, that you made um, with that band, with Baba Tundiola Tunji. Yeah, I, I actually just played djembe on that particular recording. Uh, ironically, we did lots of live gigs, and we really didn't do very much recorded work. Mm. And this was a, a group called African Rain. This is the only recording, actually, I have of mm. myself playing with Baba. And you can't really even hear that it's me because it's a whole bunch of djembe drummers, you know. <laughs> but I wanted to include it because he was so important to my life, you know. He, he, I really felt legitimate after m- meeting him. You know, mm. I felt like, okay, what I'm doing is a good thing and I need to keep doing it. Well, let's hear just a little bit of this one track. Um, and it's called Ile Ray. Yeah. 
just a segment there of Ile Ray uh, by Babatundi Olatunji uh, and African Rain, featuring my guest today, Rick Walker. Um, Rick, you were playing, you said, djembe, which is a West African drum, sort of goblet-shaped with a really tightly stretched head, very loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were one of a number of djembe players on that? Yeah, I, I, um, I was really fortunate. I got to study with Abdoulaye Jagite, who was the... From Senegal? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the leader of the Ballet National du Senegal. And I got to sit right next to him for a couple of years, uh, uh, learning how to play djembe, as I would say. Yeah, so I was playing that instrument, and that's from the Malinke people. And uh, that recording was from the late 80s. Um, you said that Babatundi Olatunji, who I think was looked at as a kind of, I don't know, kind of a father figure by a lot of people. I Definitely. mean, he was the guy who introduced, as you said, millions of Americans to the sound of real African music. Yeah. You spent a lot of time then studying with various masters of African, and as we said before, African-derived percussion. You also were forming your own bands at this time. Another one that you mentioned earlier, um, and I promised we would play something by them, is Worlds Collide. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about this band, and then we'll hear a sample. Well, after we had played in the band called Dow Rhythmical, uh, which I apologize, but uh, I don't have any digital recordings of that band, and, and um, lots and lots of VHS tapes, but <laughs> no, no, no uh, ability to change that right now. But anyway, after we did that, which was a very, you know, it was more in what you would call the world beat mode. It was very dance oriented and club oriented and all that sort of stuff. And I really began to kind of sour on that movement because it seemed kind of tokenistic to mm-hmm. me. And and uh, bands that were calling themselves world beat were doing like a certain narrow brand of of pop music that came from two or three countries in Africa. So it had nothing to do with the world. It was just African music, you know, exactly uh, yeah. played by Californians, you right. know? So anyway, um, and I just wanted to learn more and more about it. So I, I formed this band specifically and got rid of vocals so that it couldn't be like a dance band. And so I wanted it to be more like an art band in a weird way. I think of it as jazz because it's music that's heavily influenced by the African diaspora, although we go all over the world in our influences, and it was largely improvisational. We would write heads, and then we would have improvisations and come back to heads again. So it was exactly like jazz, but it didn't have swing rhythms in it. Well, let's play an example of your work with Worlds Collide. And who was in this band along with you? Uh, It was my brother, Bill Walker, Gary Regina, Malty Reeds, uh, it was, uh, we had a number of bass players, but in the last 10 years, it was Victor Revere. Um, and, um, although it's Ernie Provencher is on this particular track and Daniel Thomas was the utility person. He played every instrument. Okay. And the track we're going to hear is called A Walk in the Rainforest. We're going to hear a portion of that track.
Just a snippet there from a tune called A Walk in the Rainforest by the band Worlds Collide from the earlier mid-90s. We're not sure, right, Rick? Mm -hmm. Featuring you, Rick Walker, on which instruments? Well, on that particular track, uh, we used a Brazilian bateria concept. Then I just overdubbed myself, so I was the entire bateria. So I played all, that was all, all the you. instruments of a, of a Rio de Janeiro bateria. I'm a samba band. A samba band, yeah. yeah. Was there a cuica in there? Did mm -hmm. you hear a cuica? There's a hepito, there's a caixaca, <laughs> there's a, a tamborim, there's a surdu, uh, yeah. <laughs> and where did you learn Brazilian percussion? Um, I, I was in a group called Escola Nova Gisamba, and, and we had the Santa Cruz Ola, which was part of the San Francisco Ola, and uh, Dennis Broughton was my teacher, uh, and then later on Chalo Eduardo, and then later on all the great Batarias of Rio, and then finally uh, Ile Aye and uh, Olodum, who I actually ended up uh, performing with. You performed um, with Olodum? Both, both Olodum and Ile Wow. Uh, Aye. I actually produced four songs for Ile Aye for a record they put out in Brazil. What did you love about Samba? Man, I tell you, if you've marched for six hours playing <laughs> boom, 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 with 150 <laughs> badass drummers through the streets of San Francisco, and then you win the grand prize in Carnival, it's intoxicating. Mm, mm, not to mention the dancers. Yeah, it's really fun and beautiful, and it's, it's uh, such a... I don't know, you know, Brazil and, and Cuba both are, are in the new world. Those are my favorite cultures because they're the most complex and... Uh, you mean musically? Rhythmically. Yeah. Musically. I've never figured out why such a small island, I mean, Brazil is huge, but a small island like Cuba, how has it been such a breeding ground for so much fantastic music? Well, I think communism is a big answer. <laughs> really? Yeah, because the, the you know, everybody has a job in Cuba, even if they're broke. So if, if you don't really have a job and you're a musician and you're young, then they give you a roof over your head and food in your belly. And all you have to do all day long is play music. So they're turning out young musicians that are just unbelievable. You know, 16-year-old drummers who are frightening. Mm. They're so good, mm -hmm. technically. Mm. Um, so I, I, actually, I actually think uh, there are many things to perhaps be said uh, negatively about Fidel Castro and communism, but that's one good thing about that culture is that, that a ton of music comes out of it. Mm. And the the... In the hills of Cuba, the Spaniards did not crush the Africanism so strongly. So there was more of an African influence in it. And the same thing happens in Brazil and Bahia, uh, northeastern Brazil, where you have, you know, you have more African influence than you would find in Jamaica or Trinidad or places like that. So years and years of studying all these other traditions, percussion traditions, what did you learn from all of that? The, the world is sound. There's sound all around us. You can play a tabletop. You can, uh, you know, learning how to leave, exit the paradigm of the music I grew up with as a young boy, you know, or, or, or leaving rock and roll and funk and soul, the things that I loved when I was a teenager, and finding all these exotic new things, exotic new instruments, new languages, you know getting to meet people from all over the world. And, and I mean, I've been incredibly blessed. I've played with so many master musicians on stage, uh, you know, improvisationally, uh, and realizing that the 
the top people in the planet, the top master musicians I've ever experienced can play with anybody because all they're doing, they're playing music. And music to me, it's the only language that is spoken by all human beings and it's the only language that's an abstract language. So that, that, that's what I get. Mm. Connection. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that's the mm. final thing is connection. You mentioned repetition. Um, and of course, playing, as you said, with a samba band, playing fairly repetitive uh, licks on a drum, you know, for six hours straight. Mm-hmm. What does that do to your head? Well, um, a wise crone of mine, an acupuncturist of mine, once hit me to the fact that most of the shamanic cultures on earth, when they, when they try to induce trance, they play at 200 beats a minute. And you find that amongst the Sami up north. You find that in the Australian Aborigines. You find that in Native American shamanic traditions where they're just going boom, 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 boom. And it seems to be some kind of, of a harmonic of theta wave production in the brain so that you just do something over and over and over. They prove it in psychological studies that if the brain is starved of information over a long period of time, that we start to make up information. We hallucinate with lack of information in, in different ways than we hallucinate with too much information. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, trance induction, uh, it, it causes altered consciousness. You go to another place and uh, and I've had some really amazing experiences doing that, you know. While playing? Yeah, while playing and in, in, in uh, uh, sweat lodges, uh, recording shakers one time for a shaman. She asked me to record 15 minutes of this sacred rattle at 200 beats a minute. And she finally said, okay, you can stop now. And I said, why, why did you let me go on so long? She goes, what do you mean? And she goes, how long do you think you've played? And I go, well, 45 minutes or an hour. <laughs> She said, "No, Rick, you've been you've been rattling for 15 minutes. I mean, if you'd have asked me, I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles in court. You know, that was Elsa Echeverry. Her name should be mentioned because she's been a crone to me." Uh huh. And you are tuned to the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll get right back to today's interview with Rick Walker right after this. And now let's return to today's conversation with Rick Walker, the multi-instrumentalist and composer, talking about his life as a sonic explorer. Well, I'm going to use a cliche here. Your journey through the world's music has taken you to some other places and uh, had you working with some other masters as well. And one of them was uh, Bob Brosman, the guitarist, the late Bob Brosman. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ended his own life last year uh, in... uh, 2013, but he was well known as a kind of virtuoso of the national steel guitar. Uh, I think people probably know him from his blues or Hawaiian style playing. And you uh, played with him at some point in the 1990s? Yeah, well, I, I actually did, I think, the first or the second record with him when he first started out, and then a long period went by, and, and uh, th- by hook or by crook, what happened was he would always take cassettes when he went to travel by himself when he would tour in Europe. And one time he forgot, going to the airport, he forgot all his cassettes. So he had his cassette deck and no cassettes. And he met, coincidentally, a guy at the airport who he said, oh, man, I, I don't even have cassettes to take. And the guy pulled a cassette out of his pocket and said, well, you should play this, and gave it to him. And Bob didn't even know what it was. So for the whole tour, he listened to it. And it ended up being that original ska 62 to 66 record. 
And he just, through the whole tour, he just kept listening to ska, even though he was playing traditional blues and Hawaiian music. And at the end, he was like, wow, blues works perfectly with this rhythm. And he got really excited about it. He came back to Santa Cruz, and I was the guy at the time who was probably the top ska drummer in town, and I'd taught most of the ska drummers who were out doing stuff because I had done a lot of teaching. So he asked me to play on the record. And when I played with him on the record, I said, Bob, if you think this works well with, blues works well with ska, you have got to try Central African music and Middle Eastern music and all these different kinds of, uh, kinds of things. And it was funny because Bob was a very stubborn guy at times, you know, maddeningly so sometimes. And he just, he didn't want to hear it. But I just lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. And finally, we got a little bit of, of that going. And then all of a sudden, he just blew up and fell in love with the concept of of mixing styles from around the world and then in the latter part of his life that was a a huge thing he did he did collaborative records with people from all over the planet oh yeah there was the okinawa record and there was uh was it jolly musa jawara yeah uh, jolly Uh, musa jawara the chora player uh, uh, hiriasa takashi from okinawa Rene lakai from la reunion debashish bhattacharya from india and I was lucky enough to go headline Festival de Tay with Bob, where for um, five, nine days, we backed all those musicians. Where was the Festival de Tay? In, in, uh, uh, in uh, Quebec City. Ah. A nine-day world music festival. Oh, wow. And um, so every day we had a three-hour rehearsal. Every day we went and played to 5,000 people. Every night, Bob, the artist, and I would go into a nightclub that was packed, and we would improvise completely, stay up really late at night, get up early the next morning, and start it again. And it was just, you know, I had a, over 100 pages of charts by the end of the week because I'm a fast charter, and I was charting everything so that we could go on stage and play it well. Wow. Yeah, it was so... Yeah, it was amazing. That was, I mean, I, I really have to thank Bob for that because he turned me on to all these amazing artists now who are friends of mine and I've got to play with. So why don't you introduce this track that you brought in? This is the track probably initially why Bob brought me in in the first place and then ultimately I ended up uh, touring with him and making records with him. And uh, so it's, it's a ska-based piece. Called I Don't Know. Yes. If you ask me... Why are we here? Why does the earth have a breathable atmosphere? Go ask Camus, or else maybe Einstein will do. My answers are questions generating more questions for you. So I simply say, It's a mystery, I don't know It confuses me, I don't know What, how, or why Why did you ask me? I don't know I can't tell you cause I don't know Please don't ask me cause if I knew I'd know it all
Um, he thought he'd discovered the wheel. <laughs> he was so in love with ska. <laughs> I'm talking to Rick Walker here on the 7th Avenue Project on 88.9 KUSP. Rick Walker is a musician known to many in our broadcast area, having um, spent the last couple of decades uh, being, you know, sort of a cornerstone of the music scene uh, in this part of California uh, in all kinds of genres, as we're hearing today. Um, And that piece was from uh, Bob Brosman from uh, 1993, um, when you joined his band for a time. And by the way, I'm Robert Polly, and the reason I have Rick in the studio today is that uh, this coming week, on uh, Thursday, January 23rd, he's giving a concert at the Coombo Jazz Center in Santa Cruz that is a kind of celebration of the last, what, Rick, three decades of Mm -hmm. music making, with you and a bunch of special guests, actually. Do you want to talk about who else is going to be there? Yeah, I have a, 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 I'm really blessed. It's going to be a really great show because all these people are coming in. Uh, Gary Regina is even flying in from Arizona so that we can have the first Worlds Clyde reunion in 10 or 12 years, I think. Um, so Worlds Clyde is playing. Uh, I'm playing with my wife's uh, indie rock band called Dunn Beginner. I'm playing with my brother. I'm playing with Luke Abbott uh, uh, on a, a looping piece that I'm doing. I'm playing uh, with sort of in the second half of the concert, uh, the creme de la creme uh, uh, of, of jazz musicians in this area, many, many of the, of the finest ones, and uh, all the way from someone like Marshall Otwell, who played with Carmen McRae and, and uh, Cal Jader, uh, all the way down to I'm playing with Lucas Hahn, who is 13 years old, and Aaron Caceres, who is uh, 19 and... and um, Cameron Smith, who is 16. These are all people that I played with uh, at a weekly gig I have at Hoffman's on Fridays. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Pete Novembre on bass, Tom Nold on bass, Dana Scruggs on keyboards, uh, George Demarest on flugelhorn, Kurt Stockdale on sax, Gary Regina on sax, and then uh, I'm going to play trumpet and recorder and keyboards and drums and sing and banjo and a whole bunch of other stuff. And again, all that's happening on uh, Thursday, January 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Coomba Jazz Center in Santa Cruz. More information at org, or um, you can write to uh, Loop Pool, right? Mm-hmm. That's L-O-O-P-P-O-O-L, nice palindrome, at cruzio.com to find out more. Um, Rick, you mentioned looping, uh, and that is a whole other phase of your career. In fact, a lot of people now probably know you more for that than they do for the kinds of, uh, you know, international music we were just talking about earlier. Yeah. When did the looping bug bite you? Um, Because it's been kind of an obsession. Well, um, uh, just briefly, I saw Jaco Pastorius uh, use a one-second loop on stage with Weather Report in around 1982. And he was using very, very expensive equipment at the time. I couldn't possibly afford it. But when I saw that, I went, oh, my God, what I could do if <laughs> I could do that, right? Because I love drumming groups, and I never could have enough people in my groups to all the arrangements for percussion I wanted. I always wanted bigger arrangements, and I, you just can't rehearse that many people. You so know? why not clone yourself yeah. with <laughs> looping so, rig? Exactly. Yeah. So, so in 95, uh, Lexicon put out the Jamman, which was the first really inexpensive, relatively inexpensive, uh, digital looper. And that year, my brother and Gary Regine and I, we all bought them, and they were all synchronizable. You could hook them up with MIDI. And so we started a group called Third Wave 
and we had a monthly gig at Mobo Sushi where we learned how to loop on stage. And uh, that was the first monthly live looping gig on earth. And so it was really, I mean, people had looped before us, but we really got into it. And little by little, I started learning other instruments because I wanted, I heard things in my head that I couldn't get my fellow musicians to play. And since I could clone myself, I figured out if I could learn how to play bass or learn how to play keys or learn how to play a little guitar or whatever. So I, right around 1996 or so, I started really actively trying to learn um, melodic instruments. And then since that time, about every six months or a year, I've taken on a brand new instrument. Um, and it, I've been doing it a long time, so it adds up. <laughs> I mean, next year, it's 20 years, which is blowing my mind. Since you, since you started since looping. Since we started, yeah. And by the way, we should explain what looping is for people who don't know. What looping is, is I have the ability uh, to turn on a recorder as I start recording something, like a beatbox. And then I can hit a button at the end, and it will seamlessly loop and then continue over and over then I can go back in and overdub whatever I want on top of it, and I can do that virtually infinitely uh, with high fidelity. So when we so first layer after layer, layer after layer, although the world has really changed in the last uh, ten years, and and a lot of that has to do with work that my brother has done, I've done, and many many other people have done. Now loopers are incredibly, incredibly sophisticated. You can group tracks and you can have some things fade out when other things fade in and you can slice and dice and redo things, repitch things. I mean, it's, it's really like being a real-time producer. Mm-hmm. I create a track and then I spend a certain amount of my track producing in real time mm. uh, and, and, and then maybe soloing over the top of it. So it's really gotten sophisticated and i do need to say just as a shout out that my brother just released his first solo looping record and it's brilliant you want to hear state-of-the-art looping this That's, is this is bill know. walker mm-hmm. and what's the name of it it's called sanctuary and it's uh it's all done by bill and he's doing some very very innovative techniques with uh, uh slicing things up and readjusting stuff but in real time so you're going to hear a lot of stuff in the concert and also on that record uh, and with things that I do as well, where if you heard it on a recording, you would never guess that somebody was doing it in real time. In real time. But it I, is all real time. Yeah, people have been able to do overdubbing in the studio recording for a good long time. Mm-hmm. But looping allows you to do it live in real time. Exactly. Exactly. And, Which and sounds towards a lot that harder, end, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it is harder. I mean, because it's, it's true multitasking, because you're dancing with your feet as you're playing, and uh-huh. you have to... You know, you, you can't take too long to do something or it'll be boring. And, mm. you, you know, then right in the year 2001, I uh, started the first uh, looping festival. And actually, I think there was a small looping festival in Boston before I started. But uh, in 2002, it became an international festival and people started coming from around the world. And now it's spread to 25 countries and we're in our 14th year. And When you say we, is it an organization? What well, is it? it's, it's called the Y2K14 International Live Looping Festival. <laughs> Still it's held called Y2K, huh? Yeah, Y2K, yeah. It's held in every third week uh, of October and it's always in at least three cities in Northern California. But l- this last summer... Um, it spread to Paris, uh, Berlin, uh, Zurich, uh, uh, Cologne, and London. 
and next year it's it's going to expand to maybe 10 more cities in Southeast Asia and in Europe and in the UK. And it's this festival, it's Santa Cruz's festival. So I'm, I'm proud of it. It's a cool thing. Grassroots, all grassroots. And Well, enough talk. Let's hear an example of you doing some looping. Unfortunately, we don't have the equipment to do it live in the studio for this yeah. interview, but you have some recordings. Uh, yeah, well, this recording we're going to listen to is actually uh, is from my the first record I put out of Live Looping called Translucent Day Glow Lime Green Plastic. And I did a series of shows where I only played that, uh, uh, things made out of that material. <laughs> Uh, and and made it did an hour show doing that. Hey, what's right? this? What's this piece called? Uh, it's just this one's just called Green Tubes. So describe how you created that sound then. You've got these plastic tubes. I took day glow green um, flip-flops, ah. rubberized flip-flops, uh-huh. and, and they seal the tube and they get but that. you just wah, tap the wah, end of the wah, tube. Wah, yeah. Wah, 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 yeah. Wah, yeah. And we can hear a little rustling in that recording too mm-hmm. of you moving around, I Yeah, guess. moving around and, and, uh, and then I'm doing a lot of processing. and. Oh, yeah. You're running over your switches and your buttons and yes, so on. Yes, yeah. You could never reproduce any given performance. No, not, ever again. no, not exactly, no. Let's hear another one. Um, this is called Faux Voix. Want to say a few words about this? Yeah. Um, right about this time in my life, which would be right about in the mid-2000s, I realized that um, it was a good thing to try to take things on that are frightening uh, to myself as an artist. And I thought... I've always wanted to do this thing, but I've always been afraid to do it or afraid that I wouldn't be good at it or afraid that people would go, yeah, but you're a drummer. What are you doing that for? What are you playing trumpet for? And, you know. And that's and, not an easy instrument. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And and so, and and there's a, a certain small percentage of people will always sort of naysay you in that kind of way. Although I find that most people I know are, are actually encouraging of these things. So this time I decide I wanted to be able to walk out onto stage with a microphone and my looping equipment and no instruments and do a show, an entire show. Just voice. Yes. And that scared the holy living hell out of me, I have to say. It scared me to do that. So I knew I wanted to do it because I was falling in love with voice and extended vocal techniques and and avant-garde stuff. So um, I played a thing called Woodstockhausen, and I went and I did a single 12-minute piece and it was really well received. So a month later, I went to the Looping Festival and I did a 30-minute piece. And that was really well received. And so then I worked on it. And by the end of the year, I then could go out on stage and do an hour and a half show with just a mic and my voice. And without any ideas in my head, just walking on stage and going, go. Mm. And 
so once I got to the point where I felt comfortable doing that, it just, I don't know, it, it, I had a whole bunch of new techniques. I had, I was a lot more confident about like, if anything breaks down on stage, I don't care anymore because, okay, pick up the mic and go. wasn't my bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a little bit of a piece called Faux Voix by Rick Walker, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on 88.9 KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And I'm talking to Rick about um, his career in music and his many, many musical experiments, many of the, the most recent of which include uh, this technology called looping. And that was an example. So that was you, Rick, um, obviously singing, but processing your voice in various ways mm-hmm. to create and kind yeah, of unearthly I mean, some of it's sound. physical processing. Uh, by... Yeah. Oh, just hitting your chest. I was just hitting my chest as I sing a And falsetto. I thought that was an electronic effect. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, so... Singing was something you took on because it was scary, uh, something you try to do every six months. What could be scarier than singing? What, what are you doing now? Performing in the nude? I mean- um, yeah, I'm, I'm performing entirely in the nude. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank God I had a body lift this last year. I'm doing three things that scare the hell out of myself on next week. <laughs> I'm going to play solo piano on stage with nobody on stage. I've never, ever done that. Uh, I'm going to play the recorder, which I learned how to play last week because I couldn't find anybody to play a recorder part for a composition. Uh, I might, I might play pizzicata violin, which I've never done before. We'll see if I get to that or not. I'm going to play trumpet. I'm going to sing a couple of songs that are actual just singing a song. Right? All those things scare the hell out of me. You are the Philippe Petit of (laughs) musical performance. Um, And when you say you're going to do all this next week, you're talking about the gig that's coming up at Mm Kawumbwa on Thursday, January 23rd, um, which is the occasion for this interview, actually. Um, When you say you've never done it before, you've done them in private. You just haven't done them in public. I (laughs) um, I turned 60 in October, and all of a sudden I discovered that I like singing pop songs. And I've never really done it. And so I booked a gig at Hoffman's 
and did seven goth songs with a jazz trio backing back up. And so we did sort of jazzy versions of goth songs and they had an absinthe tasting and it was really <laughs> scary and really fun. Uh, so, uh, Well, speaking of goth and vocals, we have an example here, don't we? Yeah, and, and this is nice because this dovetails in the next year after I did the vocal thing, I thought, I have produced so many records for people and, you know, played and written and all this sort of stuff, but I've never written an entire song where I wrote the lyrics, I sang it, I played every instrument and played everything and produced it. So I was really interested in goth industrial music. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to give myself three months to do this thing. And so (laughs) I wrote everything, I wrote the lyrics, I tried to get it down. And on the last day before my deadline was up, when I was going to hate myself for not having finished, (laughs) I literally called my wife who was working and I was like in tears. I was just going, why why did I give myself this task? I recorded my vocals. They sound terrible. What am I doing? What a waste of time. And my wonderful wife is not a tough love kind of person. And she just said, I hear you're really upset about this. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm upset. And she said, she said, uh, she goes, go track your vocals. And she hung up on me. And that like shocked the hell out of me. And all of a sudden I like sort of got over my freak out. I went and tracked the vocals and really I had a huge fear level, right? And I got it finished and 30 minutes before the end of my deadline, I put it out online at 1130 at night. And then as God is my witness, a half an hour later, I got an email from producers in Japan who said, we just heard this thing. We love it. We put out the biggest goth compilation every year. We want to know if we could put this on our goth compilation. Five days later, they said, we're going to do a, a CD release party. We would really love to have you come play in Japan and do your song. So they said they'd fly me there to do my one song. And I thought I'd just sing to a dat tape or a CD or something. Another five days and a really big band called Phantasmagoria called me up and said, we're on the same compilation that you're on and it would give us great honor if we could be your band when you come. We've already rehearsed your song. So I went to Japan for eight days, played five concerts in three cities and I had a band that learned my material and I sang one song. Well, so let's I, hear this freaking song. Yeah, it's, oh, it was great. And it's called? It Doesn't Matter. Thank you. 
little bit there from It Doesn't Matter by Rick Walker using the pseudonym Ultraviolet. Yeah, I in the last uh, 10 years or 15 years, um, I've just done a lot of projects. So my abstract electronica project is called Purple Hand, and I, I did a little bit of goth stuff under the term Ultraviolet, and I've had Loop Pool has been my name for my... Uh, looping stuff. So and many personae. Ether Engine is a mm-hmm. noise project I have. and uh, uh, Yeah. Well, this has, I assume this is your most unexpected hit of all the things you've ever done. Yeah. I was big in Japan for, for a nanosecond <laughs> at the age of 54. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Yeah. It blew my mind. Well, especially, you know, doing something that you were afraid of. What, what do you think you were afraid of ha- would happen? I mean, is it, can you say anything about the fear? Probably psychologically, it, it all goes back to wanting to please my father, who's mm. a hard guy to please when I was a boy growing up. It was really hard to please. Uh, when my dad, right before my dad passed, uh, he came to me and he said, I never approved of, of you becoming a musician. I said, yeah. He goes, I never approved of your brother becoming a musician. I go, yeah, I know, Dad. He goes, you want to know why? And because he was the way he was, I said, I got a feeling you're going to tell me, <laughs> right? And uh, he just said that he was uh, a sax player and a band arranger in the end of World War II in the South, in Texas. And they would dr- try, drive around in a couple of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, station wagons and go play dances at small towns in Texas. And um, all he ever wanted to do was be an arranger. And towards the end of the war, his mother uh, convinced him to give that dream up and become a doctor. And so he said he he gave it up and he felt like he didn't have the courage to admit to himself that he made the wrong decision and that he realized he would have been happier if he'd have really been a musician rather than being a doctor in his life. And he just told me that he was so sorry. Wow. And it was I thought it was so big of him to say that because that and then you know, in the last 10 years of his life, he became incredibly supportive of both my brother and I um, in our music and, and all of his family, you know, mm. our sisters too. Mm. And I, I've been lucky. I've done lots and lots of things. I've, I've really taken a lot of risks in my life musically and done things and, and had really wonderful successes coming from it. But I still have a really strong sense of insecurity that's underneath all of it and fuels it. And in a way, I kind of feel like I probably always will. The thing I've learned is to just to take it on is, is to, you don't die. You just have a lot of adrenaline, you know, and maybe one or two people don't like what you do, mm. but that's true of everything really. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to say anything more, Rick, about how you actually put that piece together? I mean, we heard your voice, yeah, uh, which is processed in some way. Well, I I wanted a kind of a thick sound, yeah. and some of the singers that I sort of admired, Bowie's voice, and and uh, especially uh, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. Those are voc- vocalists that I really admire in the goth irv, and um, and I don't really have as big a voice as those people do, and so I I still wanted it to come off a certain way. So I actually sang it, then recorded it again with an octave. Just ah, unison, uh-huh. and then I also recorded only a whisper track, where I whispered it without any note in it at all, and then I composited those three wow. to make my final. Wow! Let's hear a little track. bit more of the vocals, uh, just so people can hear that layered effect you got there. It 
And, and what are the lyrics saying there, Rick? Well, uh, it was about a young woman that I knew whose uh, family were incredibly disapproving of her, but she was very talented and bright, and I I thought I admired her, and and uh, um, and it it just basically was it just doesn't matter what they say, it doesn't matter what mm. they do. It's mm. like basically you just have to keep going. Keep you were, you were the telling course. her, but you were also telling yourself. Oh, it's, absolutely, it was a yeah. song to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> certainly. Um, you've, you've done so many things and, and we have, um, only a handful of examples from a huge body of work, but I want to get through a bunch of them, uh, before this conversation's over. So let's keep moving here. I thought next we could go to a piece that you actually, uh, performed with your wife, Chris. Wetterts. Wetterts. And, uh, this one's called Electricity. Yeah. She had a band called Lackadaisy and it was, uh, a, it was sort of, I don't know how to characterize it. It was like if an all- young woman's band were doing like The Cure, something like that. She was very influenced by Robert Smith at the time. And so she had this band called Lackadaisy, and I was going to produce their first record. And right before we were going into the recording studio, the bass player quit. And we were scheduled to go in and everything like that. So Chris had written all the parts, the drum beats, the bass lines, the guitars, the vocals, everything. It was an entirely her band. So I learned how to play bass by her showing me how to play her bass lines. And on some of the tracks on that record, I even composited them. I'd go, stop, then go, and I would go phrase at a time because I couldn't play it, you know? So, um, and it was great because I ended up playing uh, with her quite a, quite a lot for a few years as her bassist. But you and can't I became do that a live performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, but doing that record, I learned how to play bass. Wow, so. wow. Well, let's hear a portion of Electricity by Lackadaisy with your wife, uh, Chris Wetterts, singing. Yeah. Sounds like 60s psychedelia in some ways to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, maybe not the most typical track from uh, from that record, but yeah, she's a really good writer. I really admire her a lot. She's actually, she's one of my heroes. Uh, seriously speaking, she's one of my heroes, which I, I'm... I'm pretty lucky. I like my brother is a hero of mine, and my wife is a hero of mine, and literally they are musical heroes up with any of the heroes I have in my life. So, did you and Chris meet through, you know, a gig or through some kind of performance, or how did you connect? I broke a rule I've never broken, and I dated a student. She came to me ah. for drum lessons. Ah. That's how I met her. Ah. That one was recorded in. Um... That was early '93, maybe '93. Yeah. And uh, let's jump ahead to another project you did with Chris 
Um, and this one is called Mansions Out of Phase. Yeah, the band is called Dun Beginner. Yeah. And uh, this is, again, this is a new project that Chris has, uh, and it's a trio. Uh, and again, she's doing all the writing and, and everything. I'm playing drums in this one. I didn't in the last one. And, uh, and she has absolute veto power over even Phil's. And she really, you know, uses an exacto knife. She will just cut Phil's out and everything. And she's just got a great sense about what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes I'll argue with her and end up losing the argument and finally realizing, oh, she knew the whole time. Yeah, she's, she's great. Okay, Mansions Out of Phase by Dunn Beginner, featuring my guest Rick Walker. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. So, Rick, you can still play drums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because the drums kind of took a back uh, seat with me in the last 10 years or so. Uh, right around 1999, I just sort of stopped doing the world music thing. I just, I don't know what, I just needed something new. And I bought a computer. I spent an entire uh, decade learning how to make computer music, uh, adding to my live looping and everything. And, and um and then, uh, yeah, but, but... But here you are playing rock again. Yeah, Just yeah. like 30, and loving 40 it. years ago. Yeah, playing more minimally than I played 30, <laughs> 30 years ago. <laughs> and that album, um, again, uh, what's the name of the album there? Uh, we don't know the name. We're, we're oh, almost finished new. mixing. This is oh, just this is about unreleased. ready to launch. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Unreleased track there, Mansions Out of Phase by the band Dunn Beginner. Headlined by Chris Wetterts, but also featuring Rick Walker. Rick, have we missed any important chapters in your story at this point? Well, I think the the only really big chapter that, that we missed is that uh, in 1999, right, the turn of the millennium, uh, I bought a computer and taught myself how to do computer music. And I became very fascinated by uh, specifically abstract electronica. Uh, and uh, things, uh, artists like uh, Boards of Canada or Aphex Twin. Mm -hmm. That just music just was fascinating to me. So I just I quit doing everything, and which is what I do a lot in my life. I quit everything and I just plunged into doing it. And then, in the middle of that decade, um, I fell in love with using uh, toy digital cameras, things like Barbie cams, trailing edge uh, webcams really crappy cell phones like one of my favorite cell phones has it cost uh, $29 at Radio Shack and I use the camera with it it's a terrible camera and I just started going around and and filming all kinds of things that were sort of repetitive I'm really interested in in repetition and abstract stuff and then I started putting together collages that essentially animated these abstract electronica tracks and at one point I had 30 tracks up on YouTube 30 compositions um, and which I'm going to actually I'm going to put a triple DVD out in the next year 
that has all of these videos and all that audio in it. Um, and um, it's funny, I just went to YouTube last night and, and they've like uh, gotten rid of like two thirds of it. I guess they've purged material at YouTube. I just discovered. Whoa, what, I did, yeah. why? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously not a copyright violation. It's your no, it's stuff. just gone. Yeah, I weird. Just went there and it's gone. Well, you know, we can't show it on the radio. So, is there any? Is there a name of any YouTube video that people can search for and see? Yeah, if you go to YouTube dot uh, com slash Loop Pool, okay, there now are at least half a dozen of those oh, okay. films. Okay, and so in and the they're cons- accompanied by your music. I assume. yeah, 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 or or they accompany my music okay. a lot of times. I should say. Occasionally, yeah. I make videos and then I score it. So I, I, I've gone both ways. Ah. Uh, but um, And then uh, the other thing is that when I, I took all those videos and I rendered them into black and white, and then I re-rendered them into bright orange and black, and then I used those when I did my Dayglow Orange tour in Europe um, uh, as, as backing videos. And so we'll mm. be showing some of those videos that night. And we'll also, uh, my assistant Maha will be using a new technology called Loopy Cam, which is treats video in exactly the same way that it, that we loopers use audio. So she's going to improvise with the band visually using multiple loops that she manipulates. So that's there'll be a, a, a nice visual element to the show as well. So she'll be capturing video loops that will repeat and will... Mm-hmm. Uh, that she'll vary and layer over each other and things like that. Yeah. Um, I have a piece here called Orange. Is that Does that fit with the, uh, yeah, what that, you were that's, just talking about? Yeah, that'll be the lead track from this triple DVD set that I'm Well, why don't we hear a little bit of that, huh? You know, Rick, you've used the word abstract a couple times in this interview, mm-hmm. and it's true that you know some of the music we've heard is abstract, but there's still emotional color to it a lot of times. I feel like it's still bound up with human feeling. Yes, and 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 the the moniker abstract electronica is perhaps an unfortunate thing. It's just that th- that style of music was given that name as a genre. I don't even think it's really used much anymore. When I I put out my record Purple Hand, which I think is the single best record I've ever made. And at one point, a concertizing opera singer heard that record. And she wrote back and she said she said she thought it was a masterpiece because it it had so much emotion and so much organic, so many organic qualities. And yet the entire record was electronic. Mm-hmm. And that like. Mm-hmm. That's the best compliment I ever got was that she got that I was really trying to put emotion and put, uh, um, you know, organic qualities, as it were, you know, into the music. So, Well, that is like a huge amount of territory to have covered. <laughs> and uh, I suspect um, you've moved on 
and you're doing something new, even beyond what we've talked about already? Well, about two and a half years ago, I don't know why, I just decided that I just didn't want to die and not be a credible jazz drummer. And I've always played pop and rock and world musics and things like that. And I've played jazz, but I've never like really tried to be a good jazz drummer. And so I really started working hard a couple of years ago. And so a lot of the second half of the concert reflects how like I've just been really, really deeply into that. And um, I've uh, especially really been writing a lot. I've been writing a lot on keyboards and um, I just realized looked at everything I've written and I've I've written more than an album's worth of material in the last six months just on piano um, or organ. Well, speaking of jazz drumming, with all the kinds of percussion you've done, we've talked about, you know, being a rock drummer, doing all kinds of world percussion. Uh, what sets jazz drumming apart? Well, <clears throat> I have always been, uh, specifically, I've been a groove drummer. When I first started doing a lot of studio work in this area. And a lot of people don't even realize that in the 80s, there was a tremendous amount of studio work going on. I mean, I was averaging over 50 dates a year in the 80s. And, um, you know, uh, I prided myself on on trying to learn as many grooves as I could, having them be as authentic sounding as possible. So if it was a New Orleans second line, it sounded like someone who grew up in New Orleans did it at least to the best of my ability and very a lot of times very precise clean studio work and jazz is all about nuance and embellishment it's not just about playing the groove it's about commenting on the groove Mm -hmm. and 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 floating Mm -hmm. and so i've really had to teach myself how to float rhythmically uh and um uh and and that's really been a wonderful journey you know and the neat thing is now going back and doing recording sessions, pop recording sessions, all of a sudden I just have a, a lot more sophistication, even playing nothing, playing the simplest thing. I have a lot more nuance of, of uh, uh, volume and things like that. I've had to play very, very quietly sometimes on gigs. And if you're playing a really fast bebop tune and you're going ding, 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 and you have to play it at a complete whisper, Man, you have to be on top of your technique. You can't you can't fake it, you know. So, um, Kurt Stockdale, by the way, the wonderful sax player in this area, he's he's always he always pushes me whenever I sit in in the jazz jam. He's always calling some bebop tune at an ungodly fast tempo. So, thank you, Kurt. <laughs> Do we have an example of that kind of playing here? Um, I no, I really don't. That 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 one you have to be there at the concert to hear. No. But we do have uh, a piece here by the Rick Walker Trio, which is is your jazz trio, right? Mm-hmm. And it's called Time Marches On. Right. Well, this is a piece that we're going to do uh, at the concert, and uh, it actually is it's my mock-up of the piece, right? So it's not a recording oh, of, of, of the trio per right, se, right. But, but we're going to be performing it. And uh, a lot of jazz that gets played is played by people who have their noses buried into what they call fake books. And they're playing tunes that were popular 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And what has occurred to me is that jazz can be a living art form. 
And when those people, the people we look back at the Coltrane's and the Miles Davises, when they would play a tune, they would play a tune that was like their favorite theme from a movie or something. And or so, my favorite things, yeah, from it, uh, Sound of Music. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what I looking around, I was realizing that I don't see a lot of jazz musicians who are doing that. It's like, why don't we draw from what is in you know in our experience, what we think is beautiful, and uh, you know, as an example, um, the theme from Game of Thrones <laughs> is be- it's beautiful. The bum, theme from bum, Downton bum, bum, Abbey, bum. yeah. There's there are all these different <laughs> themes, and and there they there there's no reason why you couldn't have that so i've been trying to write my brains out i've been trying to uh purposefully bring writers in the area and use all original compositions and or adapt things that are not the usual thing just as an attempt to try to make it be now sort of refresh the the jazz canon a little bit exactly yeah And so is this a, an example of that? Time Yeah, design? well this is this is definitely influenced by my love of of soundtrack music and and it also I have a great love for odd time signatures and polyrhythmic stuff. And I wrote a piece and I didn't even think about what time signature it was in, but it coincidentally it ended up that that the ostinato was in 278. And <sighs> all of a sudden it occurred to me, wow, that's a multiple of 9 and 3. So then I wrote a 3-8 part against it, and I wrote a 9-8 bass line against it. And so this thing has this juxtaposition of all these things moving, and yet it's very, very simple, and it's all scored for strings, by the way. Well, damn, I want to hear it right now. Time marches on. Rick, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Rick Walker and Friends will be celebrating his life in music at the Coomba Jazz Center in Santa Cruz on Thursday, January 23rd at 7 p.m. And you can learn more by going to the Coomba website, coombajazz.org. Or you can email Rick directly at looppool at cruzio.com. That's C-R-U-Z-I-O dot com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off for this week. I will be back next week. And we are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Thank you.